everyone, welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. This is a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. I'm Ashlyn Phelps, the Communications Coordinator at High Point Church. Some of our listeners noticed that we are a little late with this episode, and we apologize for the technical difficulties that led to that, and thank you for your patience. We are very excited to release this interview with Henry Sanders, the founder and CEO of Madison 365. He's very involved in the advocacy going on right now for changes that will benefit minority Americans in Madison and Wisconsin. We know our listeners fall in a spectrum of knowledge on race issues in America, so our lead pastor, Nick Gibson, is going to talk with Henry about questions that you might be afraid to ask on this topic. If you have any further questions or feedback, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. My name is Nick Gibson. I'm going to be the host today because we have a guest with us, Henry Sanders, who is the founder and CEO of Madison 365. I'm going to let him tell you a bunch of other things about himself. Um, Henry has and I've been friends for a while here now, and he knows Mike Beresford, our executive pastor, quite well. And he's been embedded in the Madison community in all kinds of ways for long, much longer than I've been here and knows it really well. And he's also been very involved in um, all the different kinds of things that have happened since COVID started covering that, and also since um, uh, George Floyd's death and all of the protests, discussions, and um, proposals and things like that since then. And so I wanted to have him on today to for you to get to know him, for you to know that he exists, for you to know about his ministry selfless ambition that he's been running, um, and also um, so that we can have a really hopefully frank conversation covering some questions that aren't allowed to be asked in polite conversation or publicly right now, but that um, people ask in earnest and really want answers to. There's so, basically um, two realms of knowledge people would probably want to have, maybe three. Um, one, your public life, like what like what you've been doing in your life that has given you all kinds of different experiences and knowledge. Secondly, they'd love to know something about your spiritual autobiography, like what happened within your life with God up until the present. And then maybe some stuff in about some family to the extent to which that's relevant. But I'd really, I, I'd love to have you on the podcast a number of times. I want people at High Point to know who you are. So I think spending a little bit of time on your biography, your life is really helpful. So I was born in Gary, Indiana. I was only there for like two weeks. My dad came to Madison for law school. Uh, so I've been there my whole life. I, I just say that because, you know, I think you got to be politically correct these days. I want to tell people I'm from Madison when I was born in Gary, Indiana, but I'm really a Madison guy. I've been here my whole life. Grew up on the north side of town, went to the best high school in the whole city, East High School, Pergolders all day. Uh, and then, you know, I really got, I really got to, um, I got out of college. I went to work at a place called Viracourt Community Center. And this is a time on the north side of town this is when the crack epidemic was hitting and it was just kind of fade out and they were talking about closing the Viracourt Community Center. I wanted to go back and serve in the community. So I started working there. I actually met my wife at the Viracourt Community Center. Uh, she was my boss then, still is my boss. Uh, and, so, <laughs> and so we were friends for a long time, but I worked at Viracourt Community Center. Then I started doing city stuff. I worked at a firm of action department for the city of Madison. I worked for Congresswoman Tammy Baldwin, who's now Senator Tammy Baldwin. I was a vice president of Chamber of Commerce uh, for a while. I started the Black Chamber of Commerce, Latino Chamber of Commerce, the Magnet, Mass Network of Black Professionals. Uh, God blessed me to be the first African-American to ever run for lieutenant governor in the state of Wisconsin. Um, you know, Then I, I was part of the Obama administration, where I was SBA, ran a six, six states for SBA Office of Advocacy, did that for six years. Uh, then I started Mass 365 and Fox Valley 365, as you know, in selfless ambition. 
and here I am. Tell, why don't you tell people a little bit what Selfless, Selfless Ambition is? Yeah, so Selfless Ambition is an organization I started uh, just because I really felt like I wanted the church the to give the church access to the community in a way that the churches can unify in a way to unify, be unified front to serve, to volunteer in the community. So what we've done over the years, we've had, uh, we put school pantry in schools. We've actually uh, give, like we have a gift for kids programs. Every year we give over a thousand gifts away for students. We did a rapid response time, all the COVID-19 stuff. We raised about a million dollars and we're parts of the Boys and Girls Club and not away a million dollars in a, a week to people go over like we fed a lot of, so it's so all about serving and serving outside the church walls and serving into community, but making sure we're doing it from a unified front from the church. How, how, how much, what success have we had here? Like, is there, is there good stuff to talk about or has it been mostly frustration or what? <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, I, I it's, it's uh, both, both can be true, Nick. Right. So the, right. Oh, yeah. the, yes, there's absolutely been frustration, uh, but there's actually been a lot of blessing, a lot of work that's happened through selfless ambition through the church and, you know, God's will of we've actually served and helped a lot of people fed a lot of people. Uh, I think the church has been, more visible in rooms that we normally would, probably wouldn't be in. I think self ambition has been a vehicle for that. Uh, I think, you know, some of the frustrations always is what I learned quickly when I started self ambition is that the church can be just as political uh, and just as divisive as the secular world. So I learned that early on that, you know, certain churches might be like, well, does that church, is that church does that pastor believe in Donald Trump? If he does, I don't want to support him. Or is this, that church believe in social justice? They do, I don't want to support that church. And while that goes against the whole mission of what we're trying to do, I'm trying to create the body so we can actually work together and at least agree mm-hmm. on serving. So I think that was the frustrating part. Uh, but other than that, yeah. man, it's been, it's been a blessing. Yeah. I mean, there are some people who, if a person is willing to sit and read with a kid three hours a week in a public school, but is also willing to vote for Donald Trump. They don't want that person. Oh, and, true. and, and then there's, there's other versions like, Oh, that's a social justice church. They're just basically a wing of the democratic party. They can't really be Christian. Like you get, there's a lot of that kind of crap, but both politically, but then there's also doctrinal stuff where like, you know, like if that's gotten a lot better, you know, like anti-Catholic hatred or like, if you aren't a Methodist, then you're not a, like that kind of stuff. I feel like has gotten better, but there's still a lot of, I think as the church has shrunk, some of the, ideological bigotry has gotten a little bit better because it's getting smaller. But then also there's been a lot of turf guarding mm. that's increased because there's not as much money. There's not as, and people are fighting over Christians and all that kind of stuff. I could get ugly. You told me one time that it was easier to get on the phone with a CEO of like the Milwaukee bucks than like a large church pastor. That is absolutely hundred percent. A thousand percent, absolutely true. I can get on the phone and call the senator, the mayor, major CEOs of multi-million, billion-dollar organizations. It's easier for me to get to them than it is to get to some pastors, uh, which is absolutely. So you tell my frustration, and and to me, it's yeah. it's it's the irony, right? So it's like for me coming in from the secular world, and you know, because I'm not a pastor, just a man of God, I love Jesus. Uh, I'm a Jesus geek, as I like to say, that coming into the to the to church world and getting into church politics is really it's really interesting to me because 
the same things that I think the church would criticize the secular world for, I think the secular world is probably farther in a lot of ways than the church is. And just this is a perfect example. Why would I have to have what's the, why would I have to struggle to get to a pastor uh, to talk about just trying to help? You know, it's just it's just the weirdest thing. I'm not sure what it is, uh, what's in, but it's it's very it's it's true. It's true. Yeah, churches can get really focused on their own comings and goings. I think. I mean, it may have to do something with the scope of your fame. I mean, I don't know, but but yeah, it seems like getting churches to get involved in things, they just move slow because they're like churches don't have a strong media arm. So they don't really think like, well, is this going to be in the paper and what's this going to do to our buzz and how is this going to affect our social media and are people going to buy our products and how are we going to look like they decide on partnerships over two, three, four, five, six, seven years. And so, yeah, it's just like, it's a different, it's very different, weird. Yeah. Um, So, but it's something you've been, you haven't given up. I really appreciate that. No, I'm trying. You, you worked hard to get us involved in the COVID giving stuff, and then you were part of the Psalm 46, yeah, thing encouraging those guys. And yeah, I mean, so again, like, yeah, but how can you, you can't give up, Nick? If no. I always go fall back on your why, right? So why are you doing what you do? And so me, my why is always my faith. It's always a core of Jesus, and. You can't, if you truly believe that Jesus is a Christ who came in the flesh and you believe that he is who he says he is, he's the way, and you, you believe what he's saying, love your neighbors, and like, if you believe all those things, then you can't give up on uh, God's children. You just can't give up. Uh, you yeah. know, so and, and but, how long how long has that been true for you? When you say it goes back to my why, my why is Jesus. How long has that been your? How long has Jesus been your why? That's that's a that's a great question. I um, so I've always been in the church my whole life. So my mom was a mother of Mount Zion Church. My dad is agnostic. Uh, my dad comes from a perspective of, you know, uh, he came from the south. Well, the day he graduated high school, he moved up north because people his age were getting lynched. That's when people started getting lynched around his age. So he literally, the day he graduated high school, he moved up um, from down south up north to Gary, Indiana. And so he's agnostic. And I say all that because I was in the church, but my I was never forced to be in the church. So I always knew God. I always had a relationship with God. Uh, always knew that he was, you know, there was something bigger than me. Always, always. Was but, your? Do you think your dad's agnosticism was related to lynching? I think to like yeah. the, his experience of Southern Christianity uh, at that time. No, I don't think so. Because I, I think from Southern Christianity, the black church has always been historical, a big part of the, the culture, especially down south. So I don't yeah. think that was it. I, but I do think my my father would say, if there is a God, why is he letting all this bad stuff happen to black people? Why are we getting lynched? Why are we discriminated against? Why are we have to be poor? So that's he would come from that lens. If there's a God, and there might be, but I haven't seen him move in a way I think he should be moving because the people I know we're getting lynched, we're getting beat on, like the clans kicking on our door, all this stuff. So that's the lens he comes from. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But for me, I think, you know, I don't know. That's a really good question. Um, I, you know, I, I think when I got in my, about around 23, like I think around 23, I think that's when I really, that's when I really started falling back on Jesus, like all the way falling back. Like I have to really dig in and totally not just believe in God and believe that God is greater than me, but also believe that I have to follow a son, Jesus, in his ways. I was probably starting around 23. Yeah. Okay. 
So, fan, say about your family. You married your boss <laughs> at, working at the community center. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what What is there to tell about that relevant for our audience? Well, you know, my wife is white, and so that's that's I think uh, probably interesting. We haven't so. actually officially said on this that you are a black man, but oh, in case uh, listeners have not put that together, yes, oh, black, 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 love all, love all my black, some black, black, black culture, yeah. everything. I, I'm like, yeah, 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 for real, yeah, yeah. Um, yep. So my wife, you know, she's I think for some people, interested, she's a white woman, um, and she's from Oshkosh area. Grew up in a white area, culturally white, uh, and uh, we. The interesting thing about that, Nick, is we have so much in common. Our values are so consistent that mm. uh, our uh, the color of our our skin difference doesn't really play into things really uh, as much because our values are so are, are so in sync. Yeah. Yeah. So. so. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. We had uh, we had this one lady who went to High Point. She moved to that Oshkosh area, and she said, "Nick, it's so hard here because there's no diversity. Mm. It's so white." And I said, "Darling, you moved there from West Madison. Like, how different can it be?" And she oh, was like, "A lot different. Night and day. Oh, night yeah. and day. I mean, it's it's uh, it's the closest thing we would have to a, a southern. When you think of stereotypical southern white areas." That's that's Oshkosh. Mm-hmm. I love Oshkosh. I love the area. I love Fox Valley, but it's definitely conservative. Yeah. Very, very conservative. I actually have some of the biggest yes. churches in the state are up in up that area. Yeah. yeah. Appleton area in yeah. Oshkosh, yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah. She said that it was like the politics are very different there too. Very conservative. Very much more yeah. conservative. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um oh there's so many different directions we could go here. Okay. You and I have talked so people don't know this. About every other week you and I talk for about usually like 90 minutes to two hours yeah. on Friday mornings yep. about all kinds of things. And um, it's very helpful for me. You heard that Lloyd Biddle is leaving High Point Church to be a senior pastor in Aurora, Illinois. Have you heard that yet? No. Yeah. That's kind of a, yeah, not even big if true, but just big. Like he, yeah, he took a job in his home state and he's going to be senior pastor in a church there. Yeah. It's a big hit for us. Wow. When does, um, when does that happening? Like soon. Like in two, like his last days in a couple, two, three weeks. Wow. His last sermon is this coming Sunday. I didn't yes, know family. that. Yeah. yeah. And his wife was going to uh, take it? I mean, I, I didn't give her permission, but my understanding is that she is. Yeah. So. Wow. Well, Aurora's a nice area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and Lloyd's excited about the possibility of building a real multi-ethnic church from the ground up there because it's racially about a third, a third, a third-ish in that neighborhood. Yeah. So he's got some real opportunities he'll have there. But, I mean, it's a big hit for us, obviously. Wow. And trying to pursue multi-ethnicity. Yeah. Wow. That's like breaking news. Yeah. Like that is – Yeah. Well, I'm curious what you guys are going to do now. I mean like uh, – I know. Because Lloyd at least got the culture of High Point. Like I, there's – here's what people need to understand about race, right? There's a such thing as race, and it goes back to what I was saying about my wife. What what Lloyd understood your culture within the culture of your organization, right? So mm-hmm. Lloyd was a black man who would come in and had some value systems, some theological backgrounds. I actually agreed and lined up with High Point. So right. so there there's race is bringing people in of color into organization that almost never works unless there's a, a culture fit, a value fit, right? So right. you have to find someone who's a person of color. Then you have to find a person of color that actually fits into your culture. Right. Uh, that's, woo, 
good. I'll, I'll be and, and who's coming in. So like Lloyd preceded me. So when Lloyd was actually on the committee that hired me. So he also had the benefit of being like the longest, he had the longest seniority of almost anybody on our team. So he'd been around for all the changes. He'd been at high point when things were, had been really bad. Yeah. So yeah, it's going to be really, it's going to be really disorienting wow. for them. Wow. So yeah, so you, so, yeah, so you're not gonna be able to get out of our Friday conversations anytime soon because <laughs> I need, I need your input a lot. Um, oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So anyway, so uh, you and I have been talking about um, mostly not not about projects. We, we talk about what you're doing and what I'm doing, but mainly we talk about what's going on. What does it mean? Mm-hmm. How does it relate to our faith? Yeah. How should the church be led? How, what should we say in public? That kind of stuff. You've also been doing a lot of stuff through Madison 365. Um, like like day conferences on Zoom where you'll bring in black leaders from around the state or region and talk about what's going on and what can be done and what can be done constructively. Do you want to talk about that at all? Um, what yeah. you, you've been trying, you've done a bunch of stuff with Michael Johnson, who is the head of the Boys and Girls Club here in Madison. Yeah. So, you know, the reason we did this is, as you know, uh, for the past three months, we've had gone through COVID-19 and, <clears throat> and then we've also gone through, um, Brianna Taylor being killed, Ahmaud Arbery being killed, George Ford being killed. And so the emotions of people of color right now are high and, you know, torn because most people of color, there's data coming out now that most black people know people who have been either infected by COVID-19 or have died from COVID-19, right? Because it's really impacting the black and Latino population at a higher rate so you deal with that plus you have george ford getting killed like he was on video in minneapolis the community is just up in arms and so what we're trying to do is try to create a platform where we can give people have a voice be able to invent some of that anger but also let people educate themselves on what's going on by the breath of black leaders so we did a town hall uh with all the the city police chiefs uh, and we did one with the the sheriff was also on there. We've done one with youth, a couple with youth uh, in the city. We did one with uh, Ahmed Arbery's sister, the guy who was killed in Georgia. We did one with them. So it's really just trying to, we did an all-day summit, as you talked about, around social justice, but not just social justice from a criminal justice reform, but social justice from a business perspective, from education reform. So we're just trying to do things to get people access and be able to voice their opinions, but also to educate people that the black community has a breadth of variety and diversity and thoughts within the black community, right? So it's not just one part of the community that people might hear sometimes is like the, that's the only way black people think that's not true. So try and get people a different variety to hear through these town halls. And they've worked. We've had about 350,000 people um, watch them. So it's been that's great. successful. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I think you and I've talked about is that um, the the proportionality of coverage to different black voices isn't meaningfully representative of the black community, that certain voices are disproportionately loud or when voices are disproportionately young or wield the disproportionately young, they can sometimes get more attention. And you said, you know, like the rank and file African-American in the city is conservative of values, not necessarily of politics, but of values. And the policy proposals of the people speaking for them may not be proposals they're particularly excited about, but they do want change Mm -hmm. in all kinds of ways. And they want to see huge equity gaps closed. Um, But they don't necessarily, 
Yeah, so anyway, what do you want to do with that? Do whatever you want with it. Yeah, I think that's true, right? So I, I want to say this the right way, though, because I'm not minimizing other people are doing the work. So the best way mm-hmm. I can explain it to our, our, the people are listening is most people, I hope, know Martin Luther King Jr., man was walking for God, civil rights. So we had Martin Luther King Jr. Then we had a man named Malcolm X. And Malcolm X was uh, a from the black uh, Muslim group, and he was a black nationalist. It's really talking about black power um, and, you know, by all means necessary. He was the one who was not against violence, confronting. Like, he was really about separation of black people from white people. And then you, then you have people like Thurgood Marshall, right, who actually enacted the laws and went to Supreme Court. Absolute wonderful attorney, first black man ever to be on Supreme Court, Thurgood Marshall. So they were all at the same time. But they all had different viewpoints of how they did things, right? And so mm-hmm. the same thing is going on today is that we have different, different people have different viewpoints of how there's like the Martin Luther King faction. That's like that Michael Johnson type of faction that kind of was like, this is how we should do unity and we should we should confront, but we should be strategic and whatever. Then there's that that side of that Malcolm X side that is more like, by all means necessary, black people have been discriminated against at a high level. We have no hope. And so we have to get the system's attention. And if we have to break down buildings, we have to yell, we have to stop traffic, we have to do whatever to get people's attention mm-hmm. to break down the whole system. And so those those voices are being heard right now and they sometimes they clash on tactics of how to move things forward and so right now especially when this protest all going on you heard more from that Malcolm X faction mm-hmm. that was speaking up louder and what you were uh, alluding to was that 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 faction does not necessarily speak for the whole black community and historically even we're going back to Martin Luther King Jr um, that faction did not speak for the whole black community. Now, mm-hmm. they have valid points, but it's not the whole story for the black community. So I think that one of the danger is is for people who are not who are not educated enough to think that that Martin Luther King faction speaks for the whole black community because it doesn't, or I think that right. Malcolm X faction speaks for the whole black community that it doesn't. So that's right. that's the point I'm talking about. Right. So would you agree that so okay, so two things I want our listeners to understand. That in some ways the designation of radicalism um in the West has meant two things mainly. One, by any means necessary, that you are not constrained by na- normal morality in order to get the attention and the change that you want. And secondly, that you don't your goal is not to change the system that exists incrementally, but to tear down the system and create an entirely new one. That those are the two main differentiators of radicalism. That you, by any means necessary, you're not constrained by normal morality. And two, that you want to tear down the whole system and make a new one. Because this system cannot be healed. We're yeah. not looking for incremental change. We're looking for a completely different system. So I would say yes a little bit. So I would say both sides want radical change. Mm-hmm. But I do think one side would say, the Martin Luther King side would say, we still have to, re- we still have to respect morals, we start to respect the traditions, we start to respect authority. We can confront with the systems and tools we have. We can confront within the laws that we have. We can confront those laws. We can try to put restraint on those laws, pressure them, um, but we still should make moves and challenge the system and confront the system to change because we believe that the system can be molded and can be changed 
if we have more access and more of a voice. But you have the other side, what you just said, is saying, nah, the system is white supremacy. The system cannot be changed. It cannot be trusted. We have to burn the whole thing down and build the whole thing back up uh, because it's just, it's the racism such in, in our, the DNA of the system that it cannot be changed and it cannot be trusted. So we want to basically yeah. burn the whole thing down and break it down. And, and Martin Luther King once said, it's not burn, baby, burn. It's build, baby, build. And he said that because there are a lot of people who are saying mm. burn, baby, burn. So that's mm. that's what people are feeling. And do you feel like that that is partly a function of trust, whether or not people believe that there's good faith on the part of those designated oppressors? That that King looked at white America and said, there's definitely people that are, have no good faith among them. But there's a lot of people that where there's good faith and if we can awaken conscience, there will be transformation. So therefore, we should attack with truth. And then there are people who are like, no, there isn't good faith. And when there isn't good faith, all you really have is power and you need to utilize power because truth will not avail you to people who aren't acting in good faith and according to conscience. This is where faith comes in to what you just said. Yes, Nick. So this is where faith comes in and believe in. So people like Martha King, they came in with the perspective that there's always hope that everyone's God's child, that everyone can be redeemed there's grace and there's space that you can get people to grow into that grace. Like that's the vision Martin came in. Now, Malcolm was a man of, of his faith, uh, of the mm-hmm. Islam faith, but it was more of, of, you know, we have to tear down the system and confront the system and make an eye for an eye. You smack me, I smack you back. And Mark, uh, Martin was more from, you, you turn the other cheek, right? So he was walking from a faith based uh, perspective, how he dealt with it. So I think, one is one side is that that Malcolm X again. It's the only way I can explain to people. It's more, more obviously it's more nuanced than this, right. but but the the Malcolm X side would say, look, there's no hope if if our people are being our black folks are being incarcerated at a high level, we don't own property, uh, we're we're dying at a, we're dying at a younger rate. COVID nineteen shows you that. Uh, we have all these health issues because of this racist system. Our kids are not getting educated the same way. Um, this we don't trust the system anymore. But the system has shown us historically that it does not trust that we can't trust, and so we have no hope. And since we have no hope, we have to let this out somehow. And we're not investing in your system because your system is not for us, right? So that's and w- wouldn't you say too that in relationship to the American press, that going back as far as the 1880s, maybe that figures like Booker T. Washington was very much loved by the American press. The American press loved publishing stuff he said to the point where W.E. Du Bois was kind of jealous of that, that like, he's like, you know, I'm saying a lot of good stuff here too. You guys all just like Booker because he's nice. He's nicer to you white people through, I mean, all the way through to where people like people like Martin Luther King, though he was attacked a lot, he was still more loved by the press than somebody like Malcolm X. Mm-hmm. And, but do you think that that's flipped today that the press right now seems to cover the black power spokesman more that they have the ascendancy by means of social media and by means of those forms of activism so that their voice is louder. And so that that's flipped maybe in the last 15 or 20 years. I don't think the last 15 years, I think it's flipped in the maybe past couple of years. Yeah. That, I would, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. I think that's flipped the more couple of years is that the, that Malcolm X type of theology and thinking the press tends to, uh, cover that more and buy into that more, especially the progressive side of the, the media, right? Uh, the mm-hmm. white progressive media really tends to fall into that. And I, I, we could go into deeper reason why I think that is, 
but yeah, for sure, I think that they cover that more than they would. However, I mean, they do cover like it's like like Michael Johnson, who's born on Martin Luther King. They cover Michael all the time, right? I think, but I think when it comes right. to these type of protests and these type of things, the that more militant side is getting more press and more uh, credibility than they have historically. Uh, so, you know, I think that's... Next. Do, you think, do you think that's going to change with some more of these accidental deaths happening in just like in the last... I want to say there were 14 total by June 21st, and there's been a few more. I don't think that there are, peop- that there are people like literally just killed by... Not, I wouldn't say protesters. I would say the additional opportunist riders. There's been a few of those. Do you think that that's going to turn things, or do you think it's gonna, that's not going to really matter? I think it's changing already. I, I think... Um, so... When George Floyd got murdered in Minneapolis, and people could see that that eight minutes and that forty six seconds, this man having a knee on someone's neck, I think mm-hmm. even someone who never really thought about the Black Lives Matters movement and all that stuff, you see that there's no way that you can't have empathy for that. And say, wow, that is that is ridiculous. Like that person was couldn't even move, and so I think because of that, uh, that sparked the even the average white person saying this is ridiculous. Uh, and we have to do something. I think the danger, though, what happened, Nick, is that a lot of white people who are not informed and not educated or who don't have any black relationships heard a faction of the black community and thought that faction of the community spoke for all of the community. And so I think what happened was yeah. the, that the media who didn't have relationships, there's white people who didn't have relationships they saw this rage and this pain and they could they could actually grasp because they saw this man getting murdered that they mm-hmm. they wanted to cover that. Um, but the problem is once emotion goes away, then it comes back to the tactics of who's actually getting the work done. And then how do you make it as a unified front and a country that is becoming more and more diverse in 2044 there's going to make more people look like me than you. Uh, so like, yeah. I think that's what it was. I think that's what it was. Do you think that? Um, do you think that that's really detrimental to the policies that you get? Like, I remember um, I, I've heard a number of different discussions about, for example, the crime laws, the the Reagan crime laws, and then the then the Clinton crime laws. Like, there is a, a big discussion over over the crack penalty laws under Reagan that there were people in his administration that actually felt like this was a way to create a new Jim Crow. Like, I mean, I read Alexander's book. I, I think there's problems with it, but I think there's a lot of, a lot of enlightening things in it too. Right. And, but at the same time, the entire black caucus in Congress voted for it. Like they were all for those bills too. And do you, do you feel like sometimes if you get a lot of emotion around a problem that you're like, this problem is really bad. We've got to do something right now. You get policies that like, man, you really thought they were going to help. And they really didn't, right? Like there, there's a. Yeah, I've heard a number of African Americans say that th- those crack laws were like we, it was it was an attempt to stop the crack epidemic, and it was something needed to be done, and then it turned out that that wasn't helpful. And then under Clinton, there were things that needed to be done, and there was a Clinton crime bill, and then it turned out, man, that really did that really didn't help either, at least in the realm of crime went down. But then the side effect of that was an enormous increase in black incarceration, which yeah. creates all these. It's not even just incarceration. If you like, if you were incarcerated for two years and then you got out and you were literally scot free with no record, it, it might not be as big a deal as the fact that, as Alexander points out, it's not just they go to jail for a while; it's they get out and they're felons, and like that is a, like a new Jim Crow. It, like it follows you everywhere you go. And and I I, I want to stop talking because I know people want to hear from you, but like. 
I feel like that is a universal human reality that there's something unjust about men who are felons and them trying to make a life for themselves. Cause like the musical greatly loved by white people, Les Miserables mm-hmm. in the book, Les Mis, which is like a thousand pages. The two groups of people that are seen as the miserables of French society that you have to see these people or we can't have a society was the white woman who got into a sexually involved love affair with a man because she felt like her life was empty, empty. And then when she got pregnant, he abandoned her. So abandoned single mother. And secondly, Jean Valjean, a man who stole bread because he was kind of desperate. And then he tried to get out of jail a couple of times. And so a one year sentence turned into a 20 year sentence. And then he came out as like a 20 year incarcerated person and there was no way for him to make a life for himself because he had this ticket he had to carry around with him everywhere he went. And the mayor had to sign it. He couldn't even find a place to sleep where there wasn't a dog. And like, and then it wasn't until the priest tries to redeem him and he tears up his slip and pretends he's not a felon that he can make a life for himself. That whole book is about that. And, and people really connected with it. It became a Western classic. And yet I always find it ironic that like that's literally what the black community is trying to tell us. And I, you watch the play Les Mis and you're like, something should have been done for Fontaine. You know, Jean Valjean has to have a way to have make a life for himself. Like, this is totally unfair. And then black people are like, that's my life. That's like literally our life. We're trying, that's what we've been trying to tell you. Well, so what you, what you just said is the reason why some of those protesters would say, we've been going through this for generations and no one's, no one's been hearing anything from us. And now we're going to, we're going to vent out and be violent and, be nonviolent, but we're going to protest. We're going to stop traffic. You know, we're going to we're going to be disruptive as much as way as we can. And I think that's is what you've seen. I think that anger and the danger of that is because uh, I interviewed one of the people, like one of the leaders uh, from Freedom Inc. in Madison, who's kind of leading this stuff. She's a brilliant woman, brilliant, brilliant, very consistent in her theology, her way of thinking, ideology. But you might disagree with her, but she's extremely consistent. Um, she was basically saying that. When I said, well, is there a danger for our, our youth and people downtown who were, might have been getting violent and breaking windows, all that stuff? And for the record, it was mostly white people doing it, but there was people of color who were doing this, right? And so what about them? And she was like, well, we should not police our kids how they want to, we should not police our victims how they want to express their pain. And she said, if, if they break in, they do something, What's the alternative? Because they're going to most of most likely statistics show that half of them are going to go to jail anyway it goes. So, what hope do they have? So, if they want to, what's the alternative path for them? And to me, when she said that it was really deep because what she was really saying, if you really dug in, she was saying there's no hope. There's no hope, but there's no hope for us. So if there's no hope for these kids, they don't have any hope. They're going to just lash out, and so that's the danger uh-huh. of of what's going on. Do you think that like if so, I mean, I I feel like when I try to tell people is, especially when you disagree with people, you want to like understand the other view that as best as you possibly can. Do you feel like her view is kind of like that, that the black power view in relationship to violence is we have gotten to the point where this is the only language left. Yes. Like we've we've said everything you can say in words. Yes. We've protested. We've marched. We've tried to work within the system. We have asked for help. We've asked for different things. And like, Got nothing, right? And so this, the la- the language of violence is the last language left, which is really when the language of violence is supposed to be used, when nothing else is left, yes. right? 
And so I like I I don't think that I think that when violence is used appropriately, it has to be towards a just object. And and I I don't think you know destroying somebody's business that you have no evidence is directly related to your suffering is just. But I think in a general, in the most general sense, the idea that like you you would you wouldn't punch somebody until you've tried everything else, and part of people being puzzled over violence is, is that they think that there's more to be said, but I don't know from their perspective, a lot more, there is a lot more to be said. So that's exactly what she's actually said. Almost those exact words. Besides I want you, she wouldn't advocate for violence, right? So I don't think she would advocate for violence, but she would say what you said, we've done everything we could do. We've disrupted, we've gone to meetings, we've asked, we've protested, we did everything we could do to get your attention and you still have done nothing. You left us no alternative but to extremely go really hard and disrupt in really major ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, I, yeah. So, what do you think? So, if if you okay, so there's a number. Okay, there's a number of ways to go here. Do you, so, do you do you feel like how do you feel like it's going? Okay, let me let me ask this question. I think this is. I want to ask the most constructive questions I can first that aren't that impertinent. Who should, if like, if you're a white evangelical Christian in, in Madison, all right, not, not everybody who listens to this is a white evangelical, but there's a lot of them, right? One of the things that you might say as a white evangelical is, one of the things I can do is decide whose voice to put my whatever weight I have behind, to say, hey, listen to this guy or this woman. Mm-hmm. Who are some of the people that you think are the most, they're passionate, but they're also deliberative. They're thinking about the short-term reality, like what's going on right now, but they're also thinking about the next 20 years. They want a policy that's going to help people in the next five years, right? The kids who are in school right now, but they're also may want to make sure that there's not really bad unintended consequences over the next 15. You know, that kind of, like, for example, the, um, the Ferguson effect that is increase murders and crime due to drawing back in policing, the, the light, the cost in lives, mostly black lives the most recent estimate I heard was 2000, right? So 14 unarmed black men were killed in 2019. Probably more black men were killed that shouldn't have been. There were 250 black people killed by police in 2019. I don't know what proportion of them should not have been killed, right? Some of these were shootings and whatever, but so let's say it was 150. And so now we have the protests, the police draw back, the quote Ferguson effect, the effect on crime, especially gang crime in that drawback creates heightened violence. It's, it's pacing right now to be 2000 lives in 2020. 85% of those will be black lives. 1700 black lives will be lost because of this, right? Like, how do you, who do you think is like taking that kind of stuff into account and thinking like on multiple levels of analysis and really doing constructive things so that if we put our, put something behind them, we would be working to, because here's one of the things I say sometimes. I don't give a damn about people thinking I'm woke. What I want is for little Freddie, who's going to kindergarten this year, to have a life. I want his life to be better than his dad's life. That's what I, I don't. I don't give a crap about anything else. And of course, I want him to have a chance to come to Jesus. Mm-hmm. That's all I care about. I don't care if everybody hates me. What I care about is the results for the the black children and black lives in this area. Like who should I be putting myself behind? So far all I got's you. 
<laughs> I think Michael's I think Michael's doing good work. I really believe in Marcus Allen. I feel like Marcus is really trying to be a leader in this. I yeah. like I like um James Hawkins, a new pastor at the Faith Place. Mm-hmm. I think he's very business development, human capital focused. Who else or or who? So I, this is this is a tough question, right? Because it kind of goes to what I was saying earlier. It depends what you're looking for. And because mm-hmm. I would I would say the like this woman who's running Freedom Inc. She is. She does think. I mean, I'm telling you, she's brilliant. Like you can disagree with, but she is brilliant. Like she would argue that she is thinking long term. She would say, "Well, um, I don't. We don't want police in schools because we have police in schools. We know that they have more interaction with our our kids. Then once they interaction with kids, they put our kids in jail. Once they're in jail, they're felons. Once they're felons, they can't get out. And there's a cycle. So I think she would argue that she is thinking." through all those layers, right? Um, right. So I think that's a really good question. I think um, it depends on what you what you think are the right tactics and what do, what do you think of? Yeah. What fit for you, right? So I think, um, and this is why I say all the time to white people are white people are wanting to get involved. Don't overthink this. It's like what, it's how you would get involved in your own community. Find the people that you really, the things that you believe in that fit the niche that you really think, you think has an impact and support those people. Because people have been doing this work for a long time. So the people who fit your side, your ideology of how to get things done, how to impact them, support them. Right? Do you think – what do you – okay, so um, Glenn Lowry, he's a, 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 he was the first black economist to receive tenure at Harvard. He's at Brown University now. Um, he was asked on an interview recently, do you think black lives have improved – in the last gen- two generations of Glenn Lowry 70 now. And he said, absolutely. But relative to tech, to technological measures, mostly. So like nobody's as poor as they were in 1950. I mean, just, we're not even talking about the same stuff. Right. But in a lot of ways, things haven't gotten better. So like there are some, there are some real improvements in there. I think there are some, what you would call political or social improvements in black lives over the last 50 years. But like, there's also, it seems like things that we've done that have not been good. Um, some of that related to crime and incarceration. Some of that probably related to family structure and the way we've uh, we've initiated the welfare state. Some of it maybe how we deal with drugs and whether or not we we have good systems of rehab and whether those systems of rehab work. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that seems very resistant to to incredible success has been schooling. Um, you know, a lot, I mean, the schooling problem has existed for a long freaking time and, um, there doesn't seem to be a silver bullet for it other than, um, Thomas Sowell's book on charter schools came out this, I think just two weeks ago here where he talks about, um, he, he compares charter schools that are meet in the same building with the exact same racial child makeup and that the, and the differences are immense. Mm-hmm. are immense and so the the only the only places but the problem is is that these charter schools for mostly black and latino kids are incredibly strict like they are they are not they're not like a loosey-goosey system like they send home kindergartners who are wearing the wrong socks mm-hmm. you know but they're also places of grace and all that kind of stuff so a- apart from massively expanding charter and choice schooling mm-hmm. and completely breaking up the public system entirely I don't know that there's another other than I think let me I'll, I'll end with this and let then let you comment other than Chuck Moore, who's one of the leaders in, 
in Impact Christian School has said, and I think who's the retired African American woman scholar who goes to Mount Zion who spoke uh, at the march? Gloria Landon Billings. Or, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. Gloria Gloria. Landry what's her Billings. some Landry Billings? Mm-hmm. Brilliant. Woman. Yeah, I think I think she would say this too that there has been advancement in urban context pedagogy. Like there there has like educational scholars have been developing tools for how to teach that are useful for inner city kids that are, that are already grade level behind in reading or grade level behind in math that is helpful and really does move them. And Chuck Moore says that's true. He's seen that work in Milwaukee. He's seen it work in the choice schools there. They use those systems. So in that sense, maybe we are making progress academically in, but we don't see a huge change in, in those, those differences in proficiency changing. You know what I mean? Yeah. So statistically, data wise, the people who have really black women are the ones who are thriving, um, who are doing so much better. Uh, The things that black women have accomplished is actually amazing because, as you said, the, the home has been systematically destroyed by policies and laws. The black men have been jailed, uh, die earlier, not making as much money as black women, not as educated as black women. So black women have miraculously have like overcome all these barriers. So the ones like my point is black women, if you look at the data, black women have actually done the best in the black community of actually the thrive. So when you see the the movements in the black community, most of that's for black women. Mm-hmm. Who've been moving forward? Uh, black men, just like we still don't make as much money, still dying at a younger age, all that stuff. So I, th- I think um, it's a really tough question, Nick. I do think that education is a big issue, and I do think that you hit on a couple points there. I think education is a big issue, and I'm not sure why so many uh, black folks are so pro public schools, and I think that's because it's mm-hmm. it's more of a Democrat. Lend and you know yeah. it's pro union and unions you know certainly support the black community and so I, I I'm thinking it's that but if you're looking at results our public schools have been awful for black kids uh, I mean Latino kids too but I mean specifically black kids even Asian kids start digging into data Native American kids it's just awful for our kids and charter schools seem to do at least the ones I'm familiar with seem to do better for a lot of different reasons I do think. Our public schools, at least I can speak for Madison, I think they have a lower standard and expectation for our kids. And they won't admit that. They'll get mad that I'm saying that. But if you just listen to some of the policies and some of the things they let these kids get away with, they they let these kids have a little more. They let them do a lot of stuff that historically a black, if it was a whole black school with black teachers were in the school, who had understood the black identity, the black culture, who would not let these kids get away with some of the stuff that these kids are getting away with in the school. And I think in some of the school choice schools, these charter schools, you see more teachers of color. You see more teachers who have the, who understand that black identity, have, they're more rooted in things. I think that's what, I think that's what it is. Um, can, can you clarify that a little bit for like, people who don't naturally understand what you're saying. Are you saying that there's like a bigotry of low expectations academically and then a bigotry of high expectations behaviorally? Or are you saying that it's like a bigotry of low expectations both ways? Both ways. I think what happens is, um, and this is just my experience in the schools, especially if you're a white teacher, right? So you're a white teacher and you start to understand racism and you believe it's there. So you have this kid comes in 
and you want to be nice to the kid. You want to get this kid. You want to help this kid get through. So you're saying, I understand this kid's coming in, most likely from a broken home. This kid, all the stereotypes go through your mind. Mm-hmm. All right, so I don't want to put this pressure on this kid because this kid's probably hungry. It's probably all this stuff. I don't want to put these expectations on this kid to academically thrive. Let's just get them through. Like, let's just push them through. Let's get them to the next grade. Let's just move them on and then graduate. And, you know, I've done my job because we help them graduate. We help them get there. Right. Let's get them there. Yeah. Right. But so he has no tools to go to even like UW Eau Claire. Like right. there's no way. No, no. Like that's like the third grade le- grade reading level for our kids is abysmal. I mean, like I, I think the last time I looked at the data it was like 18 percent of the kids can read at a third grade level. Right. Like it's like it's just pathetic. In Madison? In Madison. Madison. It's that low. It's low. It's low. Oh, man. It's that low. sounds like Baltimore. It's low. It's low. So it might it might approve. Like, it might be like 25% now, right? Like it's, But it's low. Yeah. Okay. And so you have that going on. And so those teachers do that. Then you have the behavioral issues where a lot of, te- lot of kids, teachers don't know how to deal with the behavioral issues. So then you put these kids in these special, these special ed type of classes or these, I put them on IEPs and kind of brush them aside. So then you all of a sudden you have no expectations for these kids at all. You're saying one from academically, I'm not going to challenge them and push them Two, I'm going to push them aside because their behavior, I don't quite get, but I'm going to give them grace and let them have, put them over here. And so you're, there's no expectation for these kids and no structure. So what happens is you're really reinforcing these kids that you have no expectation of standards for them. And so from my experience, what happens is when those kids, this is why I think um, it's really important for there to be black and brown teachers in schools, because those those folks, those black and brown teachers will say, wait a minute, um, Henry, that's not how you act. That's not how you act. And no, Henry, you can get you have a D in this class. There's no way you're going to get a D. You can't. You need to go to college. You need to work fat. You need to work harder. You need to jump higher. And there's standards. There's a standard for being black, and you have to work harder. You have to jump higher. All that stuff to be a black person succeed and and root those uh, those standards. And like say your behavior. Like what? You know that's not how we behave. It adds standards. And I so historically black communities always been that voice, right? So I grew up when I grew up. It's a true story, Nick. I grew up. I was a, I was down the street. I was like in third grade, second grade, and I was out there cursing and being rough with all the kids. And this guy named James comes out, black father in the community. He comes out and said, look, if you keep swearing, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this belt and I'm going to whoop you, right? I'm going to get you. And I said, you're not going to do nothing. He goes in, calls my mom. He comes back out. And says, didn't I tell you to stop? I said, you're not going to do nothing. And he, he said, your mom is on the phone. Oh, my gosh. I go talk to my mom. My mom said, and I, well, I told you, I, she said, what's about to happen to him, I told him he should do it. And she hung up the phone on me. <laughs> and But that's an example of how the black community used to be about it's a, it takes a village to raise their kids. It was a mm-hmm. standard and expectation of our behavior, right? So 
but that had to come from a black person that I trusted in a black culture who were yeah. who doing it not for not for patronizing reasons, not trying to break me, but to help me build our, our black identity, our black culture to what it meant to be successful as a person of color in this world. Right. Mm-hmm. So what progressives would say to that or some people who would disagree with that ideology would say, wait a minute. You shouldn't punish that kid for behaving. That kid is behaving because there's racism and there's systematic racism and they're they're hungry and all that stuff's true. The problem is both can be true at the same time. And it's always been that way. Yeah. And I I mean, one of the things I I see in people, so one of the, there's two ways that I look at this, obviously, as a pastor, naturally, like obviously I'm interested in politics and economics. My undergrad is in that stuff and social sciences and all that kind of thing. And I, you know, like if I could live another life, I'd love to be a think tank geek or whatever. But I think as a pastor, I think of it in two other ways. One is theologically. What is, you know, what does God say about humanity, whatever. But then secondly, I can't help but look at a lot of these things from the position of a counselor. Cause I've been counseling people for 20 years. Right. And man, when people are oppressed in family systems, for example, the oppression that they receive in those family system produces dysfunction in their own personality. And even if you get those people away from the oppression of their family system, the dysfunction that that oppression creates remains, right? So like I, there's all these 20 somethings whose parents got divorced and they were abusive or blah, 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 blah. they get to my church and they're like, you know, I, I had a terrible family life. And I'm like, your parents aren't here now. What you're dealing with is what's in you, which they helped cause and that you may not be responsible for getting to this point. But now if you want to succeed this has nothing to do with justice. It has everything to do with survival and, and you hewing out and carving out a future for yourself by dealing with your problems and your dysfunctions. And I feel like one of the things that conservatives and progressives talk past each other about is conservatives see dysfunction and not oppression for the most part, because that their mentality is designed to see civilizational civilizations values and see how those are being attacked Right, and so they see standards and people living according to standards. Progressives tend to see oppression, liberation narratives. So, like, who is oppressed? How can they be liberated? How can I be one of the liberators and therefore one of the good people? And I, I think that when I talk to conservative Christians, they say, "Yeah, there's a lot of dysfunction in the black community." Usually, what they'll refer to is the single parent rate, right? And when I talk to progressives, they tend to usually it's incarceration rates is the first thing they'll go to. Um, but they'll say, no, there's a lot of oppression. There's a lot of systemic racism and that's what causes this. And yeah, I feel, I feel like, yeah, you know, these can all be true at once. Not just, I mean, like a hundred things can be true at once. Right. You know? And the, the question that you have to ask is what should we work on first that will affect the most other things? And what will really make a difference in the outcome of a kid's life? So this is why this is why I only if you guys see me doing some publicly, I only deal with this stuff from a faith perspective. Right. I only deal with this from a Jesus perspective, all the stuff you just said, because my experiences are of a black man. And I, I have experienced racism. I have been pulled over by police. I've been called in. I mean, you, everything you can name of that a black man stereotypically has gone through from a racist society, racist system, I have dealt with. My experience is of a black man. There's no question about it. No question about it. As a man of Christ and a man who's following Jesus, I have to try to put down those pains and see everyone and give grace and space to people uh, and try to see everyone as God's children. At the same time, 
defend, fight, help, support our most vulnerable mm-hmm. and give them access and let them know that they are God's children and love them and give them the resources that they need to thrive and to, to, to know who they are, especially in God's eyes. But at the same time, I have to have the strength and the courage and the endurance and the perseverance to forgive mm-hmm. and to put myself down and put my own experiences down and try to get past that to get to God's agenda. And that is difficult to do as a black man. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I really believe the only way that you can really deal with these issues, a core issue, because this is about sin. This is about a bigger issue. I know you didn't go here, but I am, because this is like, mm-hmm. it's a bigger issue. And I think the only way you can really, truly get to the root of these issues is through faith. And because faith and rooted is about, is about losing yourself, being selfless, dropping your own pains, renewing yourself, renewing your mind, renewing who you are in faith, and then putting down, it's not about race per se, it's about who am I looking at the body who's hurting the most? Mm-hmm. Right Carrying now. each other's burdens. And carrying the cross and mm-hmm. saying, this person right here is hurting, this set of communities hurting right here, forget the race, forget any biases I have, how do I help, how do I have the Christ in me to see the Christ in them and help them? Right. Yeah. So that is to me, that's why faith is so important, because if you if you don't root your faith in it and Jesus in it, I'm not sure how you deal with all the different nuances and all the pains, justified pains, real pains going on without the why of how you can deal with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I just I want to agree for anybody listening that I do think that all of these issues related to racial justice track back to cardinal and major sins. I mean, they go back to envy and greed and pride and wrath and like all of the things that destroy us and their solutions are going to be rooted in a lot of ways in the the virtues of spiritual sanctification that like choosing to be selfless, being generous with other people, being forgiving, owning up to what you've done or what you've been a part of, recognizing what you what wasn't under your control, but being willing to even repent of things that you didn't yourself do in any way you can tell. So there's a point where Nehemiah, who's the most godly man in Nehemiah, I mean, like he's incredibly godly, repents on behalf of his nation and all the things that they'd done, though there's no evidence he had done any of them himself. And But he recognized that the nation needed a moment of repentance to, to, in order to get back on track morally. And so, um, you know, being willing to repent together with people is difficult. You know, at the same time, not imputing corporate guilt. I mean, where it says in Ezekiel 18, where it says, no longer will a man be killed for his father's sin, right? And that's true, but that's that's got not, not just true for white people, that's got to be true for black people too, right? You can't, you can't say, well, because this person's from a part of the city that's known for criminality, they must be a criminal because they look like them. Mm-hmm. Just because white people are from a history of criminality, and lots of other things too, but like there is a there is a history there of racism among white people that therefore every white person you come across must be a racist and must be given to that legacy. We just we have to let people not. I mean, part of it is I think part of Christian faith is recognizing we believe people can change, we believe people can be moved by the good, and we believe people can do noble things. And sometimes, as um, is it Ibram Kendrick who says like people can be racist and anti-racist in the same paragraph, 
<laughs> like all you can do is encourage the anti-racism and discourage the racism as best you can and hope for better as we go, you know? Yeah. And I think, I think Christians have to recognize that. And I think dealing w- with a fallen world, knowing that things aren't going to be perfect, but not accepting it right. is fundamentally Christian. Well, see though, that well, now that is key, right? Mm-hmm. So it goes hand in hand for people would say, there's white supremacy. The system is racist. The system is flawed. The system, the system is is wrong. Scripture tells us that's true. We're in a fallen world. Of course, the system is flawed. We're in a fallen world. Yes. Yeah. So every Christian should recognize that we're in a fallen world. And because we're in a fallen world, there's the systems in place are going to be. There's a lot of them are going to be sinful. That's part mm-hmm. of being in a broken world. So Christians should be already. We should be already wired to deal with the system. The question is, how do you deal with the system, right? Now, what are the tactics mm-hmm. you use? And like, even even our King, our Messiah said, like, what is it to you to forgive, to forgive a friend? Like, anyone, anyway, sinners even do that, right? Like, anyone can do that, right? So, mm-hmm. how do you love your enemies, and how do you love people that you might disagree with, and then how do you deal with that? You can deal with it through hate, violence. You can deal with it through. Uh, Whatever terms you say, but if you don't deal with it through love and compassion and conviction, um, I don't think you can truly fight the true battle that we're trying to fight. And so I, mm-hmm. I think I think Christians are totally equipped if they just fall back and leave themselves and their biases at the door and look at it through the Jesus lens and see people through that perspective and love from that perspective, it's so much easier to wrap your heads around this race issue because it's a sin issue. And it's mm-hmm. an issue of how do, how would Jesus have us address this issue? If you don't like the term Black Lives Matter, great. Okay, don't like it, whatever. But it's not saying, just kind of saying Black Lives Matter, I mean, I'm saying white lives don't matter. It's just if I have, if I have lung cancer and I'm not talking about pancreas cancer, whatever, okay, it's because I have lung cancer. That's mm-hmm. my focus. And the same thing for Chris, if you see pain in the community and a part of the community is grabbing out and, and reaching out and they want to say Black Lives Matter, amen. Yes, brother, as Paul said, meet people where they are. When they're weak, you be weak. When they're strong, so yes, absolutely, Black Lives Matter. If that's where you're at, brother and sister, if that's where you're at right now and that's what you want to say, amen, Black Lives Matter. Now, how can I love you and how can I help you get where you need to get? Right? So. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. So I'm just. We're gonna stop here just because we you we're at the time where you have to stop. Yeah. Um. But I think our listeners are gonna want you back, so you'll be pressured by Megan to <laughs> come on again. Um. But thanks so much for doing this, Henry. I know that um any stray word that you say can come back, blow back at you, and for sure. um, you say a lot of words every day, and for sure. you know I I mean I appreciate you taking the risk involved and being candid with us and 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 being on the podcast and. And, and like everybody, I mean, you know, as well as anybody like having to respond to stuff I say is just already putting you in a bad position. So, <laughs> so I just, I just appreciate your patience and your, your candor and also your experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so thanks so much for doing this. So, um, uh, everybody who's listening, uh, remember Henry Sanders is the, is the CEO of Madison 365. It's uh, one of the larger media organizations. Um, it's a, uh, it's a, uh, not stationed in Madison, but it's like it's home. It's home is in Madison, but it covers the whole state yeah. as well as other national news and things like that. Um, and so if you want to know what's going on, especially in the African-American community in the state and also in the region, 
Um, it's probably the best source I know of in our in our region to just know what the heck is going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but they also cover all kinds of other news as well. There's also like a, there's some faith pages. He's posted some. Um, so have you posted sermons on 365 or is it through? Yeah. 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 So yeah. I think there's one of my sermons on there. God help us all. So <laughs> um, he's been doing a lot. So, um, uh, and also we, we also said, if you want to find out what's going on in real time, because sometimes the church finds out after stuff's already over. Right. Um, selfless ambitions, um, social media page. Mm-hmm. Is uh, is one of the ways to find out what is going on in real time. Yeah. So you, if there's like a cleanup or if there's like a, uh, protest or if there's like something that they're going to be involved in, you'll be able to find out quick and also opportunities to volunteer in schools, be part of delivering food and different kinds of things that they're doing. Yeah. So, amen. Thank you for your time, sir. And, um, yeah, I don't, I don't do interviews often, but you know, I love what you're doing. Anytime I can talk to the church, man. So thank you. Good. All right. Thanks. Henry. All right, brother. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like that. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.